Welcome to SETI Lads, where we explore all things crypto finance and more. I'm your host, Jesse Eckel, and today on the podcast, we have Dan Romero from Farcaster talking about decentralized social media networks. In this episode, we talk about what makes decentralized social media networks unique, how they work, and some of the things that give them massive advantages over legacy social platforms like Facebook and Instagram, as well as we go into the future of social media and what does it look like with AI being able to make images you can't tell aren't real photos. And if you haven't seen this, it's absolutely crazy. You can go on mid-journey, you can enter some prompts, and you can generate a picture, you can generate a picture of a person that's not a real person and it's it looks like a photo. You can't tell this thing isn't a real photo. If you're looking at it, you're like, that is hundred percent a real photo. I show people and they're like, it's just pulling that photo from somewhere. It has to be pulling that photo from somewhere because it's so hard for your eyes to believe that uh, uh, an AI literally conceptualized and generated a photo that isn't a photo. It's it's mind blowing. So what happens when somebody can impersonate, uh, you, you know, right now it's photos, but what happens when somebody could do that with videos and they can impersonate the way you look? the way you sound and talk in a video where even your closest friends, where your mom can't tell it isn't you. What is social media at that point? Uh, we talk about that and a ton more. I thought this episode was really, really interesting. I hope you do too. I personally, after this episode, am now a big believer in decentralized social. And I think that that uh, not only is it the future, but I don't understand, I, I can't comprehend how possibly uh, th- things like Instagram and Facebook are going to be able to keep up with the type of model or the type of strategy uh, that something like a decentralized protocol can deploy. It is absolutely bananas. I don't even ever use that word, but I'm using it right now because that's literally how crazy it is. Uh, But before we uh, get to that, let's take a moment to hear from the awesome sponsors who make this episode possible. Perpetual Protocol is the largest on-chain perpetual trading exchange on Optimism with up to 10x leverage. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, Perp offers a simple and intuitive UX with 18 different crypto markets, including Bitcoin, ETH, and Doge to trade with your non-custodial wallet, making Perp a great place for all to explore the world of DeFi. Perp also offers vault products for all levels of users, allowing you to earn high returns with extremely low risk. Perp simplifies on-chain arbitrage strategy into a vault and automates profit back to all depositors. It's delta neutral, transparent, and fully on chain. Alpha is no longer exclusive to just those who can build bots, but is now accessible to everyone. Turn up the heat on your crypto game with Perpetual Protocol. Go to perp.com today to start trading and earning crypto. Stoic AI is a secure, fully integrated web and mobile trading app. Executing trades based on sophisticated AI technology, it's like a chat GBT for your financial portfolio. Stoic connects with the Binance or Coinbase account, enabling seamless trading and portfolio management while you live life on your own terms. To get started, simply open a new exchange account, add some funds, connect the API, and let Stoic handle the rest. Stoic AI benefits include funds never leave your exchange account, withdraw at any time with no penalty, no portfolio limits, 24-7 automatic trading, and regular rebalancing. Visit Stoic.ai for more details and to sign up for free today. We have Dan Romero, co-founder of Farcaster, uh, on the podcast today, and we're talking about decentralized social media networks. What are they and are they the future? How's it going, Dan? It's going well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Can you explain a little bit about your background and just kind of like uh, how you got into the space and how you got into decentralized social media specifically? Yeah, so it's a bit of a story. I originally am from the East Coast. I moved out to Silicon Valley 2013. And when I was moving out to San Francisco, one of my college friends, Fred Ursum, who was happened to be the co-founder of Coinbase, tried to convince me to come and work for this this fledgling Bitcoin startup. And I categorically dismissed it, given that, um, I don't know, I, I just hadn't really gotten into Bitcoin. And my first year in San Francisco, basically everyone smart I ran into had an opinion on Bitcoin. So I finally ended up reading the white paper. And that's kind of the beginning of my journey down the rabbit hole. Um, and then I ended up a, a year later, you know, leaving the company that I was at, joining Coinbase as an early employee. I was there for five years. Um, when I left in 2019, I did a little bit of travel. COVID kind of extended that. And, and I think while I was kind of off in between things, uh, re-kind of connected with an, an idea that had been bumping around in my head for a really long time, 
um, that Twitter, which, and we can talk all about this today, but uh, Twitter is, is almost like a protocol, but somehow captured with inside of a company. And Paul Graham has an amazing essay on this. If you, know, you just type Paul Graham Twitter, and it's I think from 2009, it's really short. And he, he basically made the observation that um, you know, things like Twitter usually end up being protocols, and for whatever reason, Twitter ended up within a company. And then separately, there's RSS, which if you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your podcast player just permissionlessly pulled this down from a server that, that's actually running on a protocol RSS, uh, kind of existed, and, and it got outcompeted by Twitter, I think, and again, we can talk about that, but... Um, I just had this like question in my mind. It's like, okay, well, what if you made RSS, uh, improved it so that it could start to actually be competitive with Twitter? And that was kind of the, the kernel of the idea that my co-founder Varun and I started working on in, in October of 2020. And a couple of years later, what we have now is Farcaster. And I'm happy to talk about that today. Awesome. And can you briefly explain, you kind of got into it a little bit, but can you briefly explain what is a decentralized social media network? Like, what is the difference between a decentralized social media network and something like Facebook or something like Twitter? Yeah, so let's start with what we have today, because I think most people, A, understand that from a, like, they're a user of that type of thing. So Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, um, it's got a set of rules, right? So with Facebook, when you friend someone, you have to have the other person accept that. On Twitter, I can just follow anyone. On YouTube, I can subscribe. Um, YouTube is video-based. Twitter is kind of multimedia, mostly text-based, but you can embed things. Um, Facebook has some different, you know, the, I don't even know if they have the wall anymore. I, I, don't, I don't use Facebook anymore. But, but basically, each social media uh, platform or social network has a kind of set of rules, and the important thing is that all of those uh, platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, are controlled by a company, and that company makes those rules and then gets to enforce those rules. And, and so a, a simple example is uh, with Twitter, in, in the kind of like early days of Twitter, there are actually many different Twitter apps, right? Twitter actually didn't even have a mobile app. And at some point, Twitter made a strategic decision that said, okay, well, we don't want other people to use third-party apps. Like, we, we, we want to have the first-party Twitter app and we want everyone to use that because we're an advertising-based company and it's, it's much easier to, to monetize from an ad standpoint if, if you control that. Facebook has never allowed third-party clients, right? Like there is no version of like the Instagram pro client. Uh, like everyone just uses Instagram or, or, you know, Facebook. And so that is the world today is it was kind of living this like corporate driven, like they get to make are the final arbiter of rules. They can kick you off the platform if they want. And it doesn't have to be overtly political. It could just be like, sorry, like, I don't know. You, you mentioned the word crypto crypto is against the terms of service. Now, Boom. like, we're just going to disappear your account. And by the way, all the followers that you spent 10 years building that audience, they go away. Right. And, and that happens can happen on YouTube or Twitter or Instagram. Um, so alternative, would be a protocol-based social network. And, and to be clear, one, we, we really don't have any at-scale social network, at least in the kind of like user experience that people think about in using a social network that is kind of protocol-based today, with the exception of maybe Mastodon, and we can kind of argue is like Mastodon at scale, in a, in a world where the big centralized social networks have billions of people using them every day. And something like Mastodon, which Admiral, they've kind of been building this over the last five, seven years, maybe in the low single-digit millions of people per day. But, but in terms of just kind of like if, if we just think about a paradigm shift from the world we live in today to a world where billions of people would be using uh, protocol-based social networks, the kind of world would be a little different because, and, and we can use an analogy here, we do have a couple of examples of permissionless protocols that basically everyone on the internet uses every day. Um, and, and so the first is the web, right? So like we're on a podcasting tool right here. You sent me a link. I was able to click into that and we can have a podcasting studio in the web browser. I can go click one other back button or a link and I could be, I don't know, in my email inbox or I can switch over to an analytics tool or, you know, go, go to YouTube, right? Like, so it's, it's, it's this amazing platform where 
All I have to do is change this one little field and I get a completely different experience and none of those people have to necessarily coordinate, right? It's, it's built on this kind of common standard. The other one is email where, you know, we coordinated the, this podcast recording over email. You might use a different email client than I do, but that was able to just kind of seamlessly work, able to send a calendar invite over it. And so um, two examples of, of what the world looks like when you're building on top of these kind of credibly neutral protocols. But I think where we are excited with Farcaster is, is shifting the world from this kind of centralized social media existence to one that, that is more protocol-based. And, and the advantages of that, I think there are two primary advantages. So the, the first is if you are building an audience, uh, you actually now have a direct relationship with that audience. And I, and I used to say own your audience, but I actually don't think that that's the right term. So you have your, your podcast audience. So you're working hard to build that, right? You're using uh, right. RSS <laughs> is actually how you're distributing it, but you have all these different, you know, Apple has its podcast store, Spotify, et cetera. So you are using a protocol, but you still have kind of like a bunch of competing clients that you kind of have to serve. Maybe you put this on YouTube as well. Um, the important thing there, though, is... One, you're not locked into any one platform. So if for whatever reason Apple says, hey, we don't want to accept your podcast, uh, that stinks from a distribution standpoint, but it's not existential in the sense that like, you, you can use other ways to distribute your podcast, Spotify or, or you know, Google or, or YouTube. The, the second thing, and this is important, uh, the audience is the one that actually chooses to to work with you in terms of like, if I don't want to listen to you anymore, I can just unsubscribe and like, there's no way for you to keep reaching out to me. Um, and so I, the way I like to think of it is like, you have a relationship with your audience that you, your audience opts into, but there is no one who can kind of come in between and then snip that relationship. Whereas if you're building an audience on YouTube, I can subscribe to your channel and then YouTube can come in and just snip that relationship at any point and, and there is no export, no guarantee to like be able to migrate to a new platform. So the direct relationship with the audience I think is really powerful. Um, and then I think the second thing, and, and this is harder to measure because we just really haven't lived in this environment. So you have to kind of look at early examples of Twitter and again, the web as, as being maybe a better example of this is the developers building on top of a social media protocol uh, have one direct access to the underlying data and APIs. So they can't get quote, rugged in terms of the company can't switch the rules on them because there is no company, it's, it's a protocol. And then the second thing is any user that they get to use one of their apps, that relationship is a direct relationship between the app developer and, and the user. So similar to kind of that audience point. And this is important because uh, if you go back to the early example of Twitter, Twitter had this vibrant third-party ecosystem in, in kind of the first five years that it existed. And kind of mid-2010s, they had a strategy shift going public, wanted to kind of like consolidate into a single mobile app. Twitter didn't even have a mobile app in the, in the early days. It was actually all third-party. And in, in doing so, they kind of hamstrung the API platform. So kind of what got Twitter to kind of where it was in the early days, this vibrant third-party ecosystem, they were able to change the rules overnight. And you had all these independent developers who, who were building Twitter clients and businesses, and, and so that, that really stinks. And so I think, A, that scarred a lot of people from building on top of social media APIs. Twitter, uh, Facebook had a very similar thing. The most prominent example there is like Zenga built its entire business on Facebook, and then Facebook changed its strategy. And so I think that people are very cautious about building on, on social APIs and or like most of the platforms, like Instagram really doesn't have an API that, that's like a you know, rich ecosystem where you can be building interesting Instagram apps. So I think what we're optimistic and call me old, I, I remember that era, I actually worked on an early Twitter app on the API, that if you can get the kind of underlying data and APIs for the social protocol kind of available, now all of a sudden you're going to have people permissionlessly innovating, right? Like they don't have to get like an API key like or anything. It's just like they can just start building stuff. In the same way that if you look at what happens in crypto, I don't have to ask anyone for permission to do anything on Ethereum. All I need is some amount of Ethereum so that I can go deploy a smart contract or whatever, internet connection and the ability to code. And, and so that's where I think you have those two things. The, the people building audiences have that kind of 
direct relationship with their audience, and then people building apps and, and services permissionlessly can build it and then, and then have that sovereign relationship. Those are the two things that, that protocol-based social media offers. Uh, the, la the last point I will say here, though, to, to be intellectually honest, is the average person, neither of those things provides them a benefit today, right? Like, I can go use Twitter or TikTok, YouTube, get all this great content. I mean, I guess Twitter is now making people pay, but get it for free. And, and, and so, like, why should I care? And I think today, I, I would argue, it's like, you probably shouldn't. Like, if, if you're just optimizing for near-term, like, show me some interesting content, it's, it's going to be infinitely more interesting to go to these mature platforms that have, you know, billions of people using them and, and all these, these people building uh, or creating content. But what I would say is if you, if you believe that there's a long-term trend where people who are building audiences actually are realizing that, hmm, maybe I don't want to rent this from Twitter or YouTube or whatever to only have my livelihood disappear, I think that is a trend I, I'm willing to bet on. Is, is like over time there are going to be more and more uh, people building audiences that, that want to have a direct relationship with their audience. And I think that the second thing is when you have a developer platform that is actually permissionless, unruggable, like credibly neutral protocol, developers are going to surprise you. And, and you know, start with Ethereum in, in 2015, 2016, and look, look kind of where it is seven years later. Like, there's just been a lot of innovation that's happened on it, but it's, it's, it's hard to predict Uniswap, which is like a, a post from Vitalik on a Reddit, you know, forum, and then Hayden, who's like kind of looking for something to hack on, kind of sees this post and then goes and just starts building it on Ethereum, right? Like, if, if, you, if he had had to apply to the Ethereum Foundation to get a grant to go work on it, or like, you know, whatever, whatever permission version, Maybe on paper it would never happen, but the beauty of a permissionless system that's really powerful is, is you can actually have someone who's maybe more you know, unconventional be able to go build something like Uniswap and, and then have it actually take off based on the merit of, of how good the implementation is. And so, sorry, that maybe is a longer answer than you wanted, but like that, that's, that's the, the vision for a protocol-based social network. So is that kind of... That, that's the idea you have uh, it's like minecraft how you can have uh, creators come and build their own worlds or their own uh sort of like games within minecraft or you have um fortnite that's doing that now with their new unreal engine uh they're allowing uh different developers to come in and build essentially games in the fortnite universe with uh you know their, their own properties or like the app store you know um you had nokia phones or like razor phones before that and you know they were all cool phones but as soon as the app store came out and third-party developers were able to build uh, a better iPhone, essentially, or build um, th these new utilities into the iPhone, it just dominated. And you, you, you could never go back. And these legacy companies that chose to just keep everything in-house and say, hey, we're going to build all the apps for these phones, um, they fell behind and eventually kind of died off. And so is that, that's the kind of idea that, like, you know, Farcaster is the iPhone with the App Store. Farcaster is Minecraft with the Game Store or, or Fortnite with, you know, this added on in that, like, legacy companies like Facebook and, or, or legacy social platforms like Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, um, they're developing everything in-house. And so that's good. Like, they're doing a good, decent job, but they can never do as good of a job as an iPhone with an App Store as, as Farcaster with, uh, you know, thousands of developers coming up with ideas because how can you keep up with that? that that's kind of like the idea or the, the strategy? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that, that at a high level, yes. I think it's worth, like, just some, some specific points. So obviously Apple's a company. And one of the things that is amazing about the iPhone is their amount of hardware engineering that they're able to do. And, and now I think they do a lot of machine learning stuff. So there's stuff that's happening at the software. Um, so it, that's not to be discounted. Like, I think it's harder for a software-based protocol, like even Farcaster, to have that level of innovation year over year. Um, so so that, that, that's one thing. I think a second, I, I, I like the idea of like kind of like Minecraft and actually this Fortnite example is, is probably what I want to hone in on is so modding culture generally in games if you kind of look at it you need that initial game and the initial thing that is popular 
A, to just get an aggregate amount of attention and just people who are just going to go spend the hours and like muck around. And if you have a really popular thing, people will literally push it to the edge of the, like they will find every Easter egg, like, and, 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 and like they will just know the thing inside and out. And then once you start exposing like, hey, you can make mods, people will have all these like little reference points of like, oh, that little thing I did in that one Fortnite map and like that glitch, like I wonder if I can do that in the modding environment if I get to play with the physics or whatever. And so that, that unleashes, I think, a ton of creativity. But it's important is you have to be intimately familiar with all these details. And so if you just like kind of come up with this like blank canvas, it's almost overwhelming of like, well, what can I do with this? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like you can do anything. And it's like this, you, you're overwhelmed with like what you could work on. Whereas if, if, if the improvements to whatever sandbox you're getting to play in or, or, you know, whether that's Minecraft, Fortnite are incremental, it actually is like you start expanding like, oh, well, I do this thing, but it would be nice if I could just do this one other thing or, or whatever. And I think like a great example of this is like two extremely popular games, even today, are a result of mods. So Counter-Strike is a mod of Half-Life. If you've ever played Half-Life, Half-Life is completely different than Counter-Strike. But because in that early stage of, I think it was either Half-Life 1 or 2, you could mod it. People basically were like, oh, well, what if you made this, like, defuse the bomb game? That now, obviously, has, has kind of taken on a life of its own, major eSport. And then, and then Dota, which now League of Legends is bigger than that, but, but like, the original Dota was a, I, I'm pretty sure, a Warcraft 3 mod called Defense of the Ancients. And so it's like, to go from a real-time strategy game, if you've ever played that, to this major, the, the biggest eSport, right? Like, that, that kind of evolution is enabled because of the, the permissionlessness of modding and, and, and starting with a kernel of like, here's, here are some rules and, and things that you can kind of do. And so that, that's for us like an inspiration for how, how to do it with Farcaster is the shape of the initial app that you build on top of a protocol has a major influence on, on the direction that people start building things. And I think one of the things that we want to be conscious of is if, if Farcaster or, or Warpcast, the, the app that we built on top of Farcaster to kind of showcase how it works, is too much like Twitter for too long, then everyone who comes to the kind of like blank canvas of what you can build in Farcaster world, they start with this frame of Twitter. And so I think one of the things that we want to be conscious of is now that we actually do have a, some group of developers that are interesting interested in building on Farcaster, how can we kind of expand the aperture or showcase that there are like completely other things that can be built that like nicely integrate within this whole ecosystem just as a way of helping nudge people to, to follow the, their curiosity and go from the Warcraft 3 to League of Legends in terms of the evolution. That's funny because, <clears throat> uh, are you familiar with Steam? You remember the platform Steamit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, so they kind of had an idea of decentralized social media but the apps that they built were essentially like, this is decentralized YouTube. This is decentralized Instagram. This is decentralized, you know, Reddit or, you know, whatever. Um, and I, it seems like those kind of apps always struggle, especially in the crypto world, because it's like they'll, you know, kind of shove these weird features in it that don't really make sense. And people are like, you know, why would I use a decentralized YouTube when I could just use YouTube? Right. Um, I, you know, I can build a large audience on YouTube. I can't build it on Steam at YouTube. And so it does seem to make more sense that like the future of something like Forecaster is not taking it and building uh, decentralized YouTube. It's taking it and building something uh, like TikTok before you know TikTok came out. You know, like something that nobody's ever seen, like Be Real before Be Real came out. Um, I think in schools right now, one of the biggest apps is uh, it's called Gas, and it's it's just like you can anonymously compliment somebody. And so uh, you know something new and different. But I was thinking kind of along those same lines. Um, you mentioned that like Forecaster or software is different because like uh, than Apple because Apple has a phone they have hardware and they're they're updating that hardware. Um, but I would also kind of argue that like Forecaster is similar to Apple in that like um, well well for one phones are updating you know you're getting uh, AR features you're getting uh, I'm sure soon AI features and, and all these new things and then as Forecaster the protocol also updates with those features you're going to enable 
new possibilities that have never existed before. Imagine, you know, AI, VR, these things, you're going to have new use cases for social media apps that have literally never been possible before. And so with, you know, something like Forecaster, you have, uh, you know, a thousand developers working on a thousand different ideas versus something like Instagram. You guys are more likely to <clears throat> uncover that new idea. Well, I, I, what I would say is if we can continue to grow the, the engaged group of developers who are trying new ideas on Farcast for the protocol, then I would agree with you. If you're saying the Warpcast team as being the, the ones to be able to do that, I mean, we're just one team. We're only 10 people. We're trying to build the protocol and this app. I, I think it's going to just very low likelihood that we're, we're going to stumble across some crazy new social primitive. That said, we're going to continue to grow our, our, our app, Warpcast, because we think it's actually really good for the protocol in terms of to continue to grow the number of people who are actively using the protocol, even through one app. And it, it forces us to dog food. So as we think about building the protocol, by being a you know developer on our own protocol, like we're living and breathing the, the limitations of the platform. And what I would say, though, is um, Apple is interesting with the iPhone in that there are... Uh, you know, and it's a very mature platform at this point, so it's not perfect. But, but I think one kind of thing that they nailed is they quickly realized like the improvements to the camera are actually a big driver for selling iPhones, right? Like, so every year that the the camera portrait mode and all this other kind of stuff, that's like a killer app. And they basically like, yeah, you have some pro software, but like very small market. Like making the the default like camera photos amazing um, it, it was interesting Instagram basically was able to grow because the camera wasn't quite good yet and so the filters actually made like your okay camera phone photo or you know iPhone photo a little bit better looking on screen right increased saturation some, some smart filters but what's interesting is as the iPhone camera improved um, Instagram a didn't have to do as much filtering on their end, but what it turns out is like actually as that network gets really large, people care less about the filters and more about the distribution and the connection and whatever. Apple has never been good at that, but Apple is really good at you know the hardware component, and so that that actually delineated like okay, I take my photo here, but then you know. I, if I want to distribute it to the, the widest group of people, whether that's public distribution or, or my friend group, Instagram is, is superior. And so I think that that is like an interesting way to think about it is we may not be able to come up with the equivalent of Instagram, but can we come up with the equivalent of like what Apple does in terms of that iteration of the core sensor of the camera and, and, and kind of like being upstream of, of making Instagram that much more compelling? I, I think that there there is some merit there of like what things we add to the protocol and thinking through those mechanics, um, we we can actually make those things work really well and be really easy to use from a developer standpoint. But it's actually other some other brilliant developer who really nails the like here's the actual way to package that from a social primitive and, and put it into an app, and, and I'm like ecstatic if that happens, right? So I I, I think we're you know, reasoning by analogy is also sometimes tough because then it's like, well, it's not one-to-one. -one. But I, I think, like, Apple is the most inspirational company to me in the sense that, like, they have this developer platform. Yes, there, there are complaints about it, 30% tax, certain things can't get in the App Store. But the reality is it, it dramatically increased. And if you believe Android is just the derivative of iOS, like, mobile dramatically increased the number of people who are using uh computers every day, right, in a smartphone, but also apps, like in terms of the, the, the variety of websites uh, you interact with versus apps, like on a phone, um, it's, it's pretty incredible to think, versus if we had just assumed everyone was going to use a desktop computer, we, we wouldn't have nearly the amount of software innovation that we have today because of mobile, and also just the virtue of like, everyone's walking around with it all the time, yeah. right? And um, in, in talking about that, like, Looking how quickly our world's changing, um, I remember like six months ago, I would use Midjourney to to generate an image, and it's like the face was a big blob. And today, I use Midjourney to to generate an image, and like it looks like a picture. I can't tell the difference between a Midjourney generated picture and a real photo. 
What do you think like some of the challenges are going to be with social media when like you can literally fake any photo, like any photo on the planet could be faked. Um, and, and I'm sure soon after video and, you know, all the things that kind of were special content was special because it was, you know, essentially, you know, fairly authentic, right? Like, um, we pushed the bounds of that, but it was fairly authentic. Like, uh, you know, I'm vacationing or I'm doing this crazy thing. You knew that they were probably doing that thing, but soon, you know, um, it's going to be hard to tell what is authentic and what isn't. Have you thought about like how that might change the, the face of social media? I think this has always kind of been an, an issue with technology, right? Like if you're a painter and photography starts to, to happen and obviously the, the time frames here are much more compressed relative to, you know, the adoption of photography relative to painting. Oh, well, this is not as like, you know, whatever, like you, you could just take a photo and like, how do you know you even actually made, like you can make all these arguments and I'm sure if you actually go back and look at uh, what people were saying then, it, it, it's, it's roughly equivalent. Um, I think a second thing is like, you know, photos of Sasquatch or the Loch Ness Monster in kind of a world where Photoshop is in existence. Like, like I think there's an XKCD of like, basically like, I think it's a graph of like the number of instances of photos with this and then the percentage of people who actually believe in, in these things because now it's so easy to make a fake photo in the scheme of things relative to pre-Photoshop People just don't trust photos. It's like, okay, give me a video, right? And so now, now if, if videos are easy to, to fake, you know, deep fake or whatever, then I think people are just going to look for new forms of authenticity. And, and in some ways, as a, as a creator, I would argue that's an entrepreneurial, like, arbitrage opportunity. It's like, how can I actually convince people what I am doing is even more authentic, right? I, I think if you actually look at a lot of what has made like influencer culture at, at least the or maybe influencer is maybe the wrong term because that's maybe more fake creator culture especially on something like youtube or twitch uh so compelling for people is that there's a raw authenticity right it's, it's like when it's not as edited or it's live like oh this is really hard for you to like make it you know as produced and polished and so i i think that like there will just be a natural um, opportunities for enterprising and creative creators who are just like, hey, okay, the the real way to prove that this is real is I actually now I'm doing a live thing, but I also have like two other people who are kind of giving different angles and like they're vouching for it too, and and so it you you just you're in a race arms race for authenticity. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's probably like what ends up happening. And, and like, again, I, I don't think about it specifically as to like what happens. I know there's this whole meme of like, if it's not signed by you, it's not real. Um, I think that there's some truth to that in the sense that like, if I go create an NFT and it comes from my Ethereum wallet, dwr.eth, that can actually be like, okay, this is, this is actually from DWR, so I'm, I'm minting the right thing, and now I actually have a provably rare, you know, one out of a hundred edition of this NFT. Whether or not you care about that doesn't matter. Like, you can actually make a credible argument that I can look on chain, there were only a hundred of these things generated, and it came from DWR. So that, that's an example of where I think signing makes sense, and, and it, not faked. But I think that the version where it's like, oh, well, every, every piece of media will be signed and we'll know what's fake or not. Well, if it's, if it's like a piece of um, uh, something that's like more embarrassing, of course I wouldn't want to have that signed. I want, to, I want plausible deniability. So I actually think that there's going to be plenty of instances where people are not going to want to have like these digital signatures on things because then it's like, if it, if it does get out there and it's embarrassing, then, then it's hard for that. But then, but this is what they'll say. Oh, I was hacked. Like, you know, oh, someone got into my phone, signed the photo and then proved that like, you know, I did this, but, but, but I was hacked. It, it happens with Twitter account now. Right. So I think the, the authenticity thing is actually always like one step up of the digital. And it's actually this kind of collective belief and then like people assessing reputation and or just like, do I think that this person's credible or they're not trying to fake something out? I, I just 
I just always think about like, well, I get a lot of fake accounts for me, right? And they're they'll like download my stories, they repost it. They have more followers than me on Instagram. I don't they get all the fake followers. But I think about a world like three, four, five years from now, with how quick AI is uh, going, where they'll be able to have a fake account of me with like videos that I don't have, photos I don't have. I mean, they could create a fake YouTube channel where I'm the main star of it. I'm, you know, talking to my voice and it's not me. Like we're for sure, like in the next decade, that will be realized. And it's just, I keep wondering like, what is social media at that point? Like how do, how does how does any of it exist or work you know well well that's actually like uh, i have mixed feelings on this one but like i think that Worldcoin is a good example of like the the whole or biometric like make it so that okay i i now you could imagine and this again it's like all interoperable you could you could take take it as an abstract someone figures out a proof of personhood uh, equivalent and there are a bunch of different approaches one starts to become dominant, people come to a general conclusion that, yeah, it's like pretty reliable. Like there are probably on the edge cases ways to game it, but for the most part, if you've got like a verified check from this proof of personhood um, uh, protocol, then it, it, it's, it's decently legit, right? In the same way that like licenses, yeah, you can get a fake ID, but for the most part, it's hard and like, okay, like this is, this is reasonable enough, right? Like we, we use it at the airport and things like that. Um, in, in that scenario, in a world where you can just pull that information kind of permissionlessly in because it, it lives on a blockchain or it lives on a protocol, um, you could just build a social network that requires you to have that proof of personhood. And so what I, what I think is, is there will be this weird period in, in the interim where we're not quite there yet. AI-generated content is going to explode, and now it's like, oh, this is like spammy, or you know, I I don't really want to trust anything that I see on social media right now. But the, to be fair, that like that's one of the reasons I think we've been so deliberate and slow with growing Farcaster is like we don't actually like I'd rather have it grow slower and be smaller until we've kind of figured out the the kind of like verification, authenticity, how do you make the default experience really good so you're not overwhelmed with spam because I only think it's going to grow that much faster. That said, but like once you get to a world where, okay, I have direct access to the Farcaster protocol from a data and API standpoint and there's a credible version of proof of personhood, boom, I can just build a social network that's like, don't show me any bots, it has to come from a person or, or at least from this, this address that's really hard to go create a botnet of them. And so I think that the default experience there is actually really great. And, and I could fully uh, believe that like social media within the next five to 10 years and maybe even earlier, it's like, of, of course you only interact with things that have like a reasonably high degree of, of confidence that they're human. And, and, and to be fair to Elon, um, you know, you get a lot of flack for all the stuff that he's doing, but he, he's ahead of the curve here in the sense that like his his focus on driving this new Twitter blue is like I, I think that the default experience if let's say he's successful over the next year or two of just like convincing the active people on Twitter the people who are actually creating the co content like and using it like a social network right 95% of people 98% of people on Twitter are just using it for news but for the people who are like playing this kind of like public uh, intellectual thought leadership game he gets most of them to switch over to Twitter blue. As a someone who gets a bunch of replies or mentions, like why would I ever want to dip into the like world of like potential bots and all this other kind of stuff versus if I can just like have an experience where I know everyone's paying eight bucks a month, that's really prohibitively expensive for bots. But for the average person, and you know, especially if you're going buying a Starbucks every day, like eight dollars a month for something that potentially provides you a lot of value, like potentially works. And so I, I, I think that's the world we head to. By the way, this is a you know, people always say, like, oh, you don't need a blockchain for decentralized social networking protocol. I do think one of the perks of having some amount of cost at the core level primitive um, is, is useful, right? Like, so it's like if you, if you can put a couple dollars to have to do a sign up, you, the floor for kind of like what is an account uh, is probably higher from a clearing price than, than what it makes sense to create a big botnet. And so you, you actually get a, a ton of the spam and, and bots to go away. All of them know, but I, I think Elon's onto something and just doing it in a centralized manner. But I think like from a decentralized standpoint, 
you and, and you can actually look, there are some other decentralized social networks out there now that don't have a cost to create an account. And what happens immediately is you have all these like programmatically generated accounts that start posting all this crap. And so what, what is the solution on some of these places is they started doing like, oh, well, now you need to actually put some Bitcoin or something in a, an address that you sign to prove that you're, you know, like a human. And so it's like a kind of like proof by like some amount of money, but that's not perfect either. So, so, so it, 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 there's a natural like anti-spam um, is solved in a lot easier of a way if, if, you, if you do have some amount of cost, right? I think you're onto something when you say it's, it's kind of like a battle for authenticity. And if you really do see that with Be Real and things like that, we are moving more and more towards people want authentic content. They don't want fake. And the, the spam bots are they're pretty bad right now. Like any normal person that's not like over the age of 50, when they see a spam bot, they know it's a spam bot because it's like, it's weird. You can look at it and say, this is, they're talking weird. And a normal person to talk like that. But with AI, we know that like in a couple of years that they're going to be good. You're not going to be able to tell that they're not a spam bot. They'll be able to even talk in your tone, I'm sure. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that the blockchain and decentralized networks, they do have this weird advantage of like when it comes to authentic authenticity and proving that out. Um, if you can move quicker and you, you can verify somebody is who they say they are. I think there's going to be very valuable commodities in the future. And I, I have a hard time imagining how. Instagram and Facebook, how they're going to deal with it. It just, it seems very difficult. Um, but, you know, whoever solves that problem first, it, they're, they're definitely going to be the place where people want to go because nobody wants to consume fake tweets and, and fake photos of their friends and stuff like that. Yeah, look, I think that there's a, um, there's a version of the world where, okay, so if, if online is easy to kind of like make fake, right? Um, IRL becomes the new proof of work for, for authenticity. And, and so th there's a version where you might be able to trick me into interacting with you online as a bot, like, you know, perfect AI, like you're, you're, the AI is even smarter than me. So it's like, it, I, there's indistinguishable versus, okay, so now what happens? Like I get in person with someone and like we, we scan, you know, some QR code in person to prove that we, we met each other in person. And so any one interaction, that probably doesn't solve it. But if I've now met on a network like Twitter 300 people and we have kind of these bi-directional connections, those AI bots are going to have a very hard time, at least for the foreseeable future, figuring out how to like get you to actually go do that. And, and so now all of a sudden you can actually run, and this goes back to is if you have a protocol-based social network, I can choose kind of like my client and my algorithm and all that kind of stuff. And so now I can say I only want to see people who have at least 100 IRL connections. And, and, and so the bot, like, you can be yelling and screaming into the, the digital void, but, like, you just don't even show up in, in people's experience because you've put an emphasis on not only do I want proof of personhood, but I want proof of, like, physical, like, in-person with other people. So, like, it, you, you can create the proof of work effectively for authenticity. Um, and it's an arms race. It'll never be like, I'm sure there will be some weird way that AI will be able to figure that out or, or you know, robots, or, uh, who, who knows? But, but there will always be some next version of authenticity that humans will seek because what we're looking for, I don't know, it, it is like, a, like we, we want to interact with other humans. That said, like I could be completely wrong on this and it's like actually people are going to be completely happy talking to like Spike Jones, uh, like her. Right. It's just like, actually, I'd rather talk to a super intelligent AI and I don't actually care if the people online are real or not. Like what I care about is, is it interesting? So that, that, that's like, that's the, the counter immediately to me, like philosophically, oh, we, we want humanness and, and finding other connection with humans. It's like, actually, just, we just want connection. No, I, I think you're right. I think we do need connection. And it'd be funny if it did go full circle. It's like the future of social media is in person meeting people. <laughs> Um, but no, I, <laughs> it's an emergent thing. That's on Farcaster. The, the, like one of the favorite things people on Farcaster love to do are meet up with other people on Farcaster. Uh, me too. I love it too. With in a world where we don't get that very much, not like we used to, it's kind of, it's really special and amazing. Um, and I think your idea of the QR codes, um, I'd be surprised if somebody didn't build in the next decade, if that doesn't exist in some form, somebody doesn't try it. I would be shocked. That's a genius idea. I, I want to kind of move back to kind of like, um, 
some of the d- decentralized, like kind of crypto focus of like maybe a decentralized uh, social network. A lot of decentralized social network networks I've seen, they have tokens or they, they try to jam tokens into it. What, what is your thoughts on that? Like, does a decentralized social network need tokens? Um, is that just something like, hey, you know, we can make a lot of money if we add a token to this? Or is there, are there use cases? What are your thoughts about that? High level thoughts, not even social network, just like having been in crypto for 10 years. When you use the word token, uh, okay, so what, what does the token do? Like that, that should be, you should be able to have a crisp, uh, simple answer for what, what it does. And then the second question that I would immediately ask are, okay, so what are the incentives that are, are tied to that, whatever mechanism that you're trying to do? And if you can't answer those two questions with like first principles and then thinking through like, okay, if I wanna do X, and then these are the incentives like that are gonna happen, then, then you probably haven't thought through the system. And I think that the challenge with tokens as a as a broad concept um, is 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 like the famous line of like give me the incentives I'll, I'll tell you the outcome. If you if you don't have a clear understanding of like what introducing a token into any system will um, what what behavior it will incentivize, then like a that, that's just like a dangerous thing because. The moment you introduce it, it's like a fork on the road decision for whatever you're building. And whatever the incentive is at that moment in time is going to now exponentially compound. And so that I think is, that's an extremely difficult thing to predict upfront. Whereas I think if you just kind of take any system, the longer that system has been running and kind of like uh, Lindy is the term to think about there, but like you, you just have a better model for, for the system. Like you've run through more edge cases and instances uh, of, of, of how it will work, right? It's like the, the social network is, is like an organism. Like it's just, you know, got all these little uh, parts that all feed up into the, the kind of like big macro thing. Um, so, so that is the, the thing like you need to have like really accurately modeled before you add rocket fuel from an incentive standpoint um, because now as soon as you add a, a direct economic incentive, assuming that that's what your token is doing, uh, you're going to get that behavior basically forever. It's very hard to, to course correct it. And so I think that's like a, my, my framework for, for anything in terms of like, okay, building in a crypto economic system. Now, so so an example of this is like, uh, Bitcoin, that crypto economic incentive, like that, that worked really well. Um, and it still works every single day, right? It's like, okay, there is this chain. We have a group of people who are willing to spend compute, electricity, real cost in order to secure it. As a result, they get this reward and like that system works really well. The game theory of like 51% attacks, like that is a genius Nobel prize level you know, game theory, economic piece of work, right? It is, it's, it's pretty amazing. I don't think most systems that have a token have that level of sophistication. If, if not, like, I, I, I'd be hard-pressed to come up with a lot of them. That said, like, so, so, you know, if you have a decentralized automated market maker, right, like an exchange on something like Ethereum, that's a system that works really, really well, and there's economic value that's actually created. But, but in in like an AMM right now, the the thing that I think we figured out really well is, if I provide liquidity to this exchange, I get a fee at, at you know whatever point I put it in on the this automated market maker formula, I get paid out uh, trading fees. We have yet to figure out a broader system of like, okay, there are other people who aren't necessarily providing liquidity who should get paid in this situation or benefit from an economic standpoint. I think that that's still like, uh, people are still trying to figure that out, okay? Last point on, on the social network thing, and this is unrelated to tokens, is why do people use, and, and YouTube shares some of the ad revenue, so let, let's not use that right now. The, the core version of Twitter, not 
Twitter adding the subscribe button or the super tip button or like Elon's promise that like they're going to share ad revenue. Put that all to the side. The, the reason people have been using Twitter for the last 15 years, like why do people use it for free? But that's a question for you. I'm curious what you think. So why do people use it for free? I think, I mean, it's hard to, I got on Twitter because it's a great place to find good news and information. I would say I got on Facebook because it was a great place to connect with friends and family. Um, that would be kind of the main, at least what got me on okay. it. So Twitter, so it's interesting is like, there's the version of Twitter where I use it as a primarily just to consume or versus the create version. But, but, but so let's just take the example of the average person. They use Twitter because there's news and information. Who's publishing the news and information? Like whoever is doing that, why are they using it for free? Right? Like, because they get distribution. And so I think that the thing with social networks, at least um, public social networks, right? So the, the network where you have a unidirectional follow model like Twitter, like YouTube, like Instagram, as it relates to kind of like brands, uh, not the bi-directional private oriented of Facebook, Instagram in its earlier days, if, or if you have a private account or, or LinkedIn, if you kind of separate those and you just talk about these, these kind of like broadcast public social networks, the... There is economic value. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's indirect. Distribution is upstream of monetization. So if you have a massive amount of distribution, right, if you have 2 million followers on Twitter and you want to get into the supplement business, I have no interest in supplements or whatever, but my, just my point is, is like you can build a business pretty fast in that world, assuming your audience is interested in that, just by virtue of the fact that you have distribution. And what's crazy is Twitter doesn't charge you for that. They, they basically are like, the whole model here is like give get. Like you, you put stuff out like that builds an audience. That pulls in all these people who just want to consume. And what Twitter is basically saying is like you can kind of do whatever you want. Like think about like, like Apple has their app store tax and then like their payment rules or whatever. Like you can do whatever you want on Twitter. And there's like basically outside of like, you know, some violations of the terms of service from like a you know, violence or hate speech or whatever, but like in terms of economic activity, you're free to do whatever you want. Like they don't have any rent extraction for that distribution. The New York Times in, in its heyday prior to the kind of the internet did, did not have that. If you wanted to be in the New York Times uh, without them inviting you, you could pay for an ad. And like that was like basically the only way you'd actually piggyback off of their distribution. And so, so the fact that basically distribution is now a kind of like you contribute content in because it's going to grow my overall platform, but I'm, I'm giving you distribution. Like that, that's a valuable thing. Now here's the difference though. Twitter can turn, you could spend 10 years helping build Twitter into the product and platform and audience that it is today. And then they can disappear you and you don't get any economic compensation for that. And that distribution that was implicit and, and the thing that was valuable goes away. So if you have uh, 10 million followers on Twitter and you lose your account, what is the economic cost that, that just like to you? It's like all future earnings that potentially would have been derived of that distribution. So now flip back to the decentralized social protocol based social. We need to get enough people there. But if you have 10 million followers on, on that, that's I think a lot more valuable than 10 million followers on a centralized social network where they can turn you off. And so, so that is the, I think the, the thing to focus on is if you can, drive the total number of people who are using Farcaster, the protocol, every day to a high enough number and really engaged, and it can be across a whole bunch of different apps, then the distribution on Farcaster becomes actually really, really valuable. And that in and of itself is, is actually, I think, the single best thing to have this kind of like uh, flywheel of growing the protocol, right? It's like more distribution attracts more people, which attracts, you know, it, it just... That, that's the, that's the, the thing to really be focused on. And I think what's hard about that is it's a grind. And it's a grind in 2023 when you have mature Web2 products that already have hundreds of millions, billions of people using them. And so I think that where you get a lot of like crypto Web3 people, they're like, oh, well, if I just add a token, I can grow really fast. But, but what's the quality of that growth? Right, like basically anyone who's going to go use your social network because they get paid, a like 
it's probably not that much. Like the economics, just like money, just like magically is not going to materialize. So if you're giving, you know, a couple dollars worth of a token, at some point, then like what, what, what? These people are all waiting around for other people to show up, and then it's like, okay, who's getting paid to like come in and produce the content? And like it, it, it's circular. Someone has to pay. Like you just can't make money magically appear. And so I think that the the far better strategy is work on building organic and emergent distribution because you've actually built a protocol that is functional, has users, there's an initial app on top of it, and just continue to keep making that better and better. And if other apps start building on top of it, you're actually going to build a distribution as, as a whole, which that, that in of itself is valuable. The Obsidian Council is my private community where I share monthly research and joining gets you access to some pretty awesome perks, including monthly research reports that dive deep into the crypto market, current trends, and projects that I'm looking at each month, the airdrop guide, a monthly guide devoted to hunting the most lucrative airdrops in the space. Obsidian Council members were able to make anywhere from $1,000 to $8,000 during the last Arbitrum airdrop. The Obsidian Council community, which is a private Discord, where we work together to try to grow our wealth, share different strategies that are working for us, and find up-and-coming projects. Yearly in-person meetups where we get together in real life, spend the weekend at the beach together, or hit up some awesome crypto conference. We just launched the Airdrop Masterclass, a full premium level $300 course, which is a completely free and included perk for all Obsidian Council members. This is designed for somebody who has zero experience farming airdrops to get them started and get them up to speed so they can start hunting some of the most lucrative airdrops in the space. And it even includes some tutorials on hunting some of the most popular airdrops that are out there currently. We have yield strategy walkthroughs, monthly live meetings, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes for anyone interested in joining, but keep in mind we do limit the availability for slots each month. I don't I don't know if we touched on this, but kind of the way that you're painting it or envisioning it is that um, as a protocol forecaster, right, um, say I put content onto the protocol of forecaster, kind of like an RSS feed, and there's like 12 or maybe 100 different apps built on it. And some have like really weird use cases. Some are more like vanilla. My content would theoretically be distributed to every single one of those apps that accepted that type of content. So if it's text and those apps are text-based, um, you know, they, they surface text-based content, my content would be on that app or if it was video, uh, photo, whatever. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that, that can happen. I think it's, it's going to be um, different for every app, right? So let's say I build a client that's like really focused on photos. Like I want it to be old school Instagram, glass, like whatever your like kind of visco like photo. And I see uh, like from a developer and, and there's like a new message that comes in that has a video. The, the nice thing about that is the developer can choose how they want to do it. And so, like, if I'm focused on photos, like, why would I be showing something as a video? Like, I, I don't want this to become Instagram Reels. So you can just filter it out. Or you can say, hey, I want every single post on every single network, and this is the, like, just, like, give me the dopamine feed of, like, anything interesting that's happening. You can build that, too. So I think it's a little bit of mix and match. But the important thing is any developer that wants to display uh, any given piece of content is free to do so. Right, and, and, and the idea is that if you're building on the Farcaster protocol, the kind of like implicit uh, agreement of like what, what you're doing as a developer is if you're going to use the Farcaster protocol for the distribution, you're, you're by definition making that public. So by making it public, people can do whatever they want with it from a client standpoint. So I think that's like a pretty powerful paradigm in the sense that like, you as the developer can't be like, I want this app to use it, but this app can't use it. It's like, okay, well, if, you, if, if that's what you want, don't build on Farcaster. Go build you know, your own app. And so there's a little bit of like, what you're doing is you're kind of like commoditizing the, the network effect. And it's a little bit of a weird kind of concept in the sense that like, if the Farcaster protocol continues to grow and the distribution available is bigger and bigger, you're gonna have plenty of apps that are like, okay, well, I, in, a, in a perfect world, I would love to have all this distribution just for me because I can I can run extract more, but that's really hard to do. So I'd rather use this kind of like common ground neutral uh, protocol and distribution because now at least I'm going to get people to use my app because if they use it, it can actually hit all their existing followers. They don't have to rebuild their their graph here, and I'll figure out other ways to make money. 
And so I, I think the long-term benefit of that is you're going to actually have a lot of um, uh, innovation in business models and, and just like people experimenting with new ways to make money, right? Like maybe it's more transaction-based commerce of like you get a referral fee, like, you know, Amazon affiliates type thing. But like, okay, if I click on, you know, these types of links in this app, I'm just tacking on my affiliate and, the, the, and like the teams can actually be a lot smaller because the infrastructure is actually kind of uh, shifted to a protocol, and so you can actually just tap into this, and you don't have to go run all these backend servers and feed generation and, and all this other kind of stuff. And I think as a result of that, uh, you just have many, many more apps and clients and weird niche things. So it's like if you're into the NBA, like someone builds actually a client that's just like it uses machine learning and other smarts to just just show you basketball stuff, like. And you don't ever have to worry about like someone talking about like the latest iPhone because it's 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 smart enough to just show you basketball. And so I, I think that's the world we're headed into. And so there will be plenty of interoperability between clients, and then there's actually going to be plenty of siloing between clients, and that's okay because people can opt into what they want to use. Kind of to change it up a little bit, uh, just thinking about like the advance of social media. Kind of went from like text uh, early MySpace days where you're basically just you know doing text stuff. And then uh, I remember the movie 300 came out and then they gave you 300 photos and then, you know, photos became more of a thing. And then, um, you know, Instagram really pushed forward like photos. And uh, then we have video, video, you know, YouTube and Reels and TikTok has, has been on the rise as content seems to get more and more sophisticated. Uh, this is just like pure speculation. Where do you see it going next? Like what's what's after what's what's after where we're at? Um, is it just different kinds of videos? Do we go to like weird things like AR and uh, VR and stuff like that. Like, where would you, your brain, imagine things go next? Well, I had the answers probably be building them, so that that's one thing. But I, I think one area, like for example, that I've been spending a lot of time thinking about, um, are just you know, like AI is hot, so you naturally you spend probably time thinking about it. I think um, they have this like term, infinite content universes. It's like Marvel content universe, and it's like infinite content universe. And the idea being is you have some seed story origin, probably you can generate also with an LLM, so it's like LLMs all the way down. But, um, you know, ChatGPT, for those on the, the side of like LLM, uh, large language model. And so you basically can actually create an entire world uh, that then can be infinitely generated just based on prompts and, and kind of character. AI is another company that's like kind of doing some stuff like this. So. Like, what if you could basically, in, in the social media app, like, embed a character in your, in your like, post, basically? And so, it, it, and it could be a narrow, specific thing. It's like, I, you're posting, I don't know, about Abraham Lincoln, and now, like, the, the, the thing you're interacting with on the social media is, like, a tuned version of Abraham Lincoln based on all of his writings and then, can, you know, stuff from there that you can interact with. Like, I think someone will come up with something interesting like that. And in, in retrospect, it'll be obvious afterwards. And it'll be like, oh, these, these intelligent agents that like live within a social network inside of a post, uh, it's actually a cool experience, but that requires some developer to like kind of try a thousand times in terms of like figuring out the configuration and what the user experience would be. But like today, the best way you can link to an LLM is just like, a link that kicks you out to ChatGPT or a screenshot to say, go do this in ChatGPT versus the ability to just like tap the thing in app and actually start interacting with it. So that, that's like an example. I think with Apple's headset, um, people are going to want, in the same way that like you have like a link that opens up into a mobile app, like there very well could be a link that opens up into just a 3D experience. Now, obviously, that's hard. It's like you're using a phone and you like tap that link. Like, what does that experience look like? Versus, okay, like, I, and one thing that I'm thinking about is like, okay, what what is a Farcaster client in this new Apple headset? If if the Apple headset really takes off over the next year or two, like, what what you know, do we still have a feed that's like kind of like in a scrolling thing, or should it should it be like more like going to a party? Where like I I'm now in the visual kind of like I can see the whole room, and then there oh there that's like a big group of people oh these people are talking that's kind of interesting and but like should it be like one instance of you or like if I'm having six conversations on something like Twitter should there be six versions of me and being like okay which conversation do I kind of like want to show up to 
So, so I, I, I think like all these like kind of sound wacky and like stupid and it's easy to be like, okay, that's dumb. But like the, the fun thing about all this stuff is like when these paradigms start shifting, some creative smart person actually figures out the, the native way to interact with this new paradigm. Like the feed was not uh, obvious to begin with, right? People actually got pissed when Facebook launched the newsfeed back in the day. But like the Facebook newsfeed and Twitter's feed on the web turns out like the feed is actually like a really, really powerful, especially Twitter where it's like constrained. When you're on a small mobile device and you're kind of like wanting to scroll, like that, that's the native way of interacting with information. And we kind of had examples of like an email inbox, like, but, but like it just takes time for people to kind of like figure out, it's like, oh no, no, a feed, a feed is, is the way to, to do things. Right, like YouTube originally was not a feed. Like YouTube was like kind of point links to videos and the idea would be like, okay, someone shares a link, whereas like the, the YouTube app now is, is a feed, right? And so I think that's the thing that I'm most excited about is like we've got this huge trend that's happening right now with AI and on the horizon, I, I'm just generally very bullish on when Apple releases a product that actually can catalyze a space into existence, even if the first version is expensive and not perfect, like the iPhone. Um, that you could potentially have like, okay, what does it mean to be, to your point, like interacting with AI in a social context on the internet? And then the other one is like, what happens when we're not just in 2D in terms of like the experience of, of UI? And so I, I think those are two massive areas to be thinking about in terms of how it relates to the fundamental thing that social solves for is that humans want to express themselves and connect with other people. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that really goes down to the point that hardware and the future development of hardware it just is going to inherently open up new possibilities and there's going to be pioneers. Hopefully they're developers, uh, not a part of the Farcaster team, but building on Farcaster who are coming up with crazy ideas. Uh, some of the ideas you have, uh, but they have their own wacky spins on it. And you know, one of those sticks and it takes off and it's the next TikTok. And suddenly decentralized social media is picking up steam and it's like, uh, you know, uh, rising tide carries all ships. Suddenly all these apps are starting to take off. The flywheel is afloat and more developers are flooding to the platform. More people are developing crazy ideas. And then suddenly, uh, you know, some of these legacy platforms, they're going to really struggle to keep up because they just can't, they can't move that fast. They're always, they're always late to the game. They're always right behind TikTok or whatever. Try to release their own version, fail at that, try to buy it, fail at that, and then try to rip it off. Um, but it, it stuff's moving too quick that they're just not going to be able to do that continually. Um, so last question, if people want to kind of follow what you're up to, if, uh, they want to follow what Farcaster is up to, where can they go and how can they do that? Yeah. So they can, um, start with me on Twitter, uh, of all places, because it's, I've been on there for 15 years. So DWR on Twitter. Um, I tweet about Farcaster most of the time now, uh, and I spend most of my time on Farcaster, but if you want an invite to Farcaster, if you made it this far in the podcast, there's a little bit of proof of work here. If you send me a, um, a DM on Twitter, so DWR on Twitter, uh, if you send me a DM and you use the word Montana, uh, like the state, in the DM, I'll just like prioritize it. I have a little filter that looks for keyword. And I'll send you an invite to Farcaster. And you can get set up with Warpcast. And there are a bunch of other apps in the ecosystem that you can try out. And uh, that's where basically I spend most of my time on Farcaster these days. So there you guys have it. And I will say from experience, Farcaster is, or sorry, Warpcast, Warpcast is amazing. There's a lot of awesome people on there. And just because of the nature of, uh, I think, the stage of it, um, it's kind of like Clubhouse in the early days where you kind of get on there and there's all these just baller people with amazing ideas, sharing amazing content that you're just not going to get anywhere else. So I would definitely take him up on that. As always, people remember investing in crypto is risky. You should always do your own research. Nothing we said here today is investment advice. I'm not your financial advisor. It's up to you to do your own due diligence on your own investments. You're a grown adult. Act like it and start taking responsibility for your own decisions. And as always, remember, stay steady, lads.